0: Our Old Testament reading comes from Micah chapter four, verse one. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths.
1: Our sermon text tonight is from the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were a Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Would you pray with me? Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy, we ask by the power of your spirit that in this moment you would do the thing that only you can do, and that is to take these words that are in your word, um, to take the words that I've prepared, and shine light on them, and shine light on places in our hearts where the light needs to be shown, Lord, and would you use these to great effect in our hearts and in our souls in the life of this congregation of your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Amen. So I, um, I consider myself, you're free to disagree, um, but I consider myself a pretty responsible adult human being person. I have kids, um, I have a house that I make payments on every month usually write when they're due. Um, I have a job. Um, I have responsibilities. Um, I think I'm a pretty responsible adult person. It's just that for the life of me, I can never, ever keep up with my keys. I mean, The amount of times that either my family or the people I work with see me grabbing and grasping and turning things over and scrambling and looking and searching to try to find them, it it would really blow your mind. It would make you question me as a person. I can never find my keys. And in these grabbing and grasping and searching and looking and feeling and trying to find my keys on so many occasions... I suddenly realize that they're already in my pocket. The thing I'm grasping and feeling and trying to to find is something that is already very, very, very near. And it's into that impulse that the Apostle Paul in Acts 17 to the Athenians speaks. He's in Athens, and he observes that they are reaching and grasping. This is the vivid language he uses. Feeling, trying to find God, the divine being. And what Paul wants them to know, he wants them to know two things. First of all, he wants them to know that the that the God, the divine being, the only God, the only true God that there is, has actually come very, very, very near in the person of Jesus. And he, Jesus, is there for the taking. And secondly, and perhaps a bit more urgently, he also, in this sermon he preaches, wants the Athenians to know that Christ is there But the time to respond to this Jesus is now. Not later, but now. So we're going to explore this sermon of of Paul's. And I want to encourage you to look at it with me really from two lenses. Let me explain. First of all, I want us to put ourselves in the story as the Apostle Paul see so you every single day every monday through friday and friday night and saturday and sunday and sunday morning and sunday afternoon every single day of your life you are around people coworkers family members neighbors people on sports teams people who study with you who are reaching and grasping and trying to feel their way for god in every Post in social media and every news story that comes across, is every anything you see, you have to know that you are looking at a river, an ocean of spiritual longing. See, human persons have to find what's ultimate. They can't help but try. And this text, I think, gives us some instruction as to as to how, as Christ's ambassadors, we might be those who, in the face of that ocean of spiritual longing, we might be able to proclaim Christ. That's the first lens, the Paul lens. I also want to encourage you to think of it from the Athenian lens. Because we also, if we're honest with ourselves, we are those same people every week. Reaching and grasping and feeling and searching and trying to find what's real and true and ultimate. In other words, that ocean of spiritual longing is deep inside your own soul. And I wonder how Paul's sermon might speak a clear and present word to you and to me and to us tonight. So we're going to go about this by summarizing Paul's sermon. This is fun because it's a sermon on a sermon. But the main idea I want you to hear, the main idea we're going to arrive at is that Jesus is the one that they and you are looking for. Jesus Christ is the one that they are looking for. Jesus Christ is the one that you are looking for. So let's take a look. Paul here is going to preach really right to the heart of the Athenians. Look with me at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to To be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be preaching, be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Aragopus, saying, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting. Goes on in verse 21 that the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul is in this area of Athens. I spent some time in the last couple of weeks looking at a map of Athens in the first century. And there's an area called the Aragopis. It's, it's, kind of it's kind of an outcropping. Um, an outcropping rock that kind of overlooks the city. It's like a vista of all of Athens. And it would be a place where court cases would be tried and held. Um, it would be a place where ideas would be exchanged. Greek people, apparently, the Athenians had this pastime for sport. They enjoyed debating and trading barbs and, and debates about philosophical ideas. It's, it's kind of hard to explain, because there's not a place quite like this in our culture today. It's part city council meeting. It's part courthouse. Um, it's If you can imagine a city council meeting that not only talked about like, how we're going to pave the roads and like, clean up the leaves, but also decided to debate philosophy. Now for some of you that sounds wildly exciting. And for some of you, maybe it doesn't. I mean, I think maybe the closest equivalent to something like this would be maybe the university campus. A place where ideas are are exchanged and and talked about often. Um, It could also be, honestly, just the internet. A place where ideas are constantly exchanged and talked about. But the point here is that the good news of Jesus is moving to the center of intellectual power in the book of acts it will go to the center of intellectual power athens as it begins to travel its way to sort of political power later and paul is provoked verse 16 says he was provoked within him and we don't exactly know what all is going on there he's he's somewhat frustrated perhaps you know paul was the one who was previously killing christian people he's been dr- dramatically rescued by jesus himself And he doesn't want Christ's glory to be going to another, perhaps. And it's frustrating to him. But I also think he's he's moved. See, there's a place in the Psalms, which Paul would have known, that says the sorrows of those who pursue false gods will multiply. I almost imagine him moved pastorally because he knows the damage that idolatry does to a heart and to a soul. And what Paul notices in verse 22 is just an intense spiritual anxiety among them. Look with me at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul sees that they're very religious. See, from this place where he's talking, this this view over Athens, just to his left, he would have been able to see the the hill of the nymphs. See, these were these fairy beings in Greek and Roman mythology that flew around and, and, and blessed you in different ways he would have been able to see that hill straight out ahead of him he would have seen the temple of Hephaestus this was the god of the forge the god of blacksmith and crafts and craftsmanship people would go there to to give tribute to that god in his temple for hopes of material blessing and success would you believe me if I told you that the Roman name for Hephaestus is Vulcan? I'm just gonna add that in for free tonight. It's all for free, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> to to the right, to the right, he would have seen the theater of Dionysus, the god of wine and pleasure. There's all kinds of other statues and temples, Jupiter, Zeus, Mars, and Juno, Minerva, Mercury, Bacchus, gods of war and power and trade and fertility and pleasure and the sea and the stars. And every one of these gods would have been calling out, yelling out loud almost to the Athenians all day long, we have the good life. We have the good life for you. Come, come. But Paul notices that there is an inscription to an unknown God. In other words, the Athenians possess within them this deep spiritual anxiety. Are we really worshiping all the gods? Are we really doing all the things we need to do for everybody to get the good life we're hoping for? And just in case, let me do one more statue to an unknown God. It's a cover all my bases kind of move. Does that make sense? See, pagan religion created deep anxiety. This is something I've been thinking about a lot this week. If our faith, even our pursuit of Christian faith, is making us more deeply anxious. Now, I don't mean anxieties and worries about the difficulties of life in this world, but if our pursuit of God is making us constantly anxious, am I feeling whatever I'm supposed to feel? If I'm feeling whatever I'm supposed to feel, if I'm feeling close to God. And I submit to you that it's probably not the Christian faith. Because one of the things about Christianity is it offers deep clarity about God, who he is, what he's like, what it looks like to be in a relationship with him, what it means to know him. And Paul notices this anxiousness idolatry has created a deep spiritual anxiety. And y'all, as I thought about those things this week, I could not help thinking that I feel that inside of me. Yet yeah, you yeah, know I probably this week am not going to go up to the Vulcan statue and burn anything to Vulcan. But I do feel the constant pull of forces that are kind of saying, hey, Joel, serve me. Spend money with me. I can give you a good life. See, the Reformers, I'll remind you, I say this a lot at Grace, but the Protestant Reformers were really clear on the fact that anything that we love, hope, or fear more than we love, hope, or fear in a good way, the Lord, that is most certainly an idol. I was thinking about this week about how we have an endless supply of the idols' voices coming to us all the time, especially in our pockets through something like an iPhone. Like ancient peoples would have looked at the things that happen and come through our phones and could not have had a category, anything other than something deeply, wildly, crazy spiritual. There's, there's a woman named Tara Burton who's a, not a Christian, but she's a commentator on religion. And she wrote a, a book called Strange Rights, where she talks about the new religion in America. She makes, the, she makes the argument that America's not growing less religious. It's growing infinitely more religious all the time. Here's what she says. And she's talking about a generation that people call millennials. They're not rejecting religion, but what they're doing instead is remixing religion. This book is the story of how more and more Americans, particularly how more and more millennials, envision themselves as creators of their own bespoke religious experiences, mixing and matching spiritual and aesthetic and experiential and philosophical traditions. These remixers hunger For the same things humans have always hungered for, a sense of meaning in the world, personal purpose within that meaning, a community to share that experience with, and rituals, rituals to bring the power of that experience into achievable everyday life. But they're doing it differently. At least they think they're doing it differently. More to that to come later in the book. Today's remixers reject authority and institution and creed. They value intuition and personal feeling and experiences. They demand that they write their own script about how the universe and how even human beings operate. They're shaped by two twin forces, creative communication of the internet and consumer capitalism. They don't want to receive doctrine, assent to creeds. They want to choose and more often than not purchase That's important. Purchase the spiritual path that feels more meaningful to them, more authentic. They prioritize intuition and intuitional spirituality over institutional. And they want, when available, institutional options that meet their needs. And if they don't, they want the freedom to mix and match and create their own daily rituals and practices and beliefs. the New Testament would go a step further in saying that whenever we feel these siren calls to things that are lesser than Jesus, that there's actually demonic forces at work trying to deceive us. And I know that's a lot. But Paul is in essence saying, let me free you. Let me free you. It is exhausting to pursue false gods. Those who chase after foreign gods, their sorrows multiply. Paul says, let me free you. Verse 23 again, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And here's where he goes to start doing the freeing. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is saying that the God of Israel is actually the the Lord of all the universe. He's saying that this God that he's proclaiming when he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection, he's not not saying that this is just one more deity option. He's saying this Jesus is, is, is ultimate. He's not a thing. He's not a feeling. He's not a vibe. He's not a force. He's not a something. He is a someone. Someone who can be known. Someone who's gone to the cross in real time, in real space, in the concrete realities of the world for you. And by the way, he's alive. He goes on in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries in their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying this Jesus, this Lord of all creation, who is revealed in the person and work of Jesus... That he's here, he can be known, he's gone to the cross for you, he's alive. And all your life, you're spending time feeling and trying to find him. And what I'm here to tell you is, he's actually near. And Lord, as Paul says, is saying in so many words, you can have him. You can have the one, your soul is looking for you can be free you can be forgiven you can be more alive than you ever thought possible you can be united to this jesus but he he turns it up in intensity because he's telling them that the time to respond is now look at verse 30 or verse 29 again Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man or this Jesus from the dead. See, Paul is saying something that is really important to understand. If you are a person who attends something like church, and you hear the gospel proclaimed on a regular basis, and that's a good thing, by the way. What Paul is saying is once you've heard this word of the gospel about this Lord Christ, who's gone to the cross and been resurrected, who's ascended to the right hand of God, who upholds the universe by the word of his power even now, who's now sent his spirit into the world to make sinners alive. Once you've heard that, you're now responsible for having heard it. He's, he's saying God is patient, and he has been patient. But the time is now. To put it another way, the time is not later. Later. But it's it's now. And again, again, to say it again, Paul is not saying, and, and let me just add another deity to the endless supply of deities on offer for you. That is how I tend to think. I tend to think I'll fear and love and hope in the deity of something like having enough money in the bank account or having the right kinds of pleasures. And this one, and that one, and that one, and that one. And no, by the way, yeah, I'll also do Jesus in the mix. Sure. One of the hardest things to get over as a human being in this world, particularly at our age, if I can just be so bold, is so hard to get over the idea that Jesus can be pursued as a side interest. He's the Lord of all. And Paul's saying the time to respond is now. And by the way, you can respond to him. He's here. He's yours. I want to conclude. It's always dangerous when, as a preacher, you say I'm going to conclude because that sets expectations. Like, is he talking five minutes here? Is Is this is this pinned down moment, or not? So I try not to say it. But I I do want to just speak to your heart, and I don't know how long it'll take. (laughs) I I think the first thing I want to encourage you to to think is is to think of yourself in this story in Paul's position. You know, every day, every day, it will happen to you the minute you look at your iPhone. It will happen to you the minute you're in conversation with somebody you know, Christian or non-Christian. Because I think the point I'm trying to get across to you is this tendency to be drawn to other gods is also a problem we have in this room, correct? It, it will immediately start happening. You'll start feeling and sensing the river, the ocean of spiritual longing. I mean, go, go, watch, watch, an, watch an NBA playoff game and look at the river of spiritual longing. Listen to the, just a politician talk. Listen for the river the ocean of spiritual longing. Read essays, read novels, listen to song lyrics. It's actually what Paul does here. He's quoting kind of poetry of theirs. Just like y'all say, we're all of his offspring. That'd be like me saying, you know, just like y'all say, no um, money, more problems. <laughs> song lyrics. You will be feeling, sensing, noticing the ocean of spiritual longing. and the invitation of this passage, as you see people in your life reaching and grasping, looking, finding, searching, but not finding, it's, it's an invitation to say, I know what you're looking for. I found him my senior year of high school. I've kind of found him again, again, and again, and again, including this afternoon. I know what you're looking for. His name is Jesus. It's an invitation to tell. It's an invitation to tell. Also, to speak to your heart, to think of this from the perspective of the Athenians. So you and I, we won't be just observers, casual observers as people long for other gods, but we will find ourselves doing the same thing. And I I cannot possibly know all the ways, I cannot possibly know all the ways, I cannot possibly know all the ways that you and I are, are, are searching and looking, grasping, trying to find. But as clear as I can tell you, His name is Jesus. He's real. He's true. He's alive. He's gone to the cross. You can have him. He's infinitely satisfying. And following him is not easy. But you will not be disappointed. And this text is a call to turn to him. But listen to me. To turn to him now. Joel Busby speaking. I just have a sense that I can walk away from the other deity later. I at least want to do that or experience that or chase that or spend that. Then I can... The sorrows of those who chase after other gods will multiply you you know that in the depths of your soul and the good news of the gospel is that the one you are looking for he's Jesus
1: and you can have him let's pray